It's Thursday, March 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Amazon workers at a warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, are currently voting on whether they want to unionize. The voting period ends on March 29th, but already the retail, wholesale, and department store union has said that in recent weeks, over 1,000 Amazon employees have called to inquire about organizing drives at their own facilities. Jay Green, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how Amazon is fighting to keep its employees from unionizing. Next, the tourism industry has taken a huge hit by COVID. Before the pandemic, tourism accounted for one in 10 jobs around the world. International travel hit a 74% decline. Worldwide emissions from air travel dropped about 50%, and cruise lines had to stop trips altogether, with most sailings canceled into May or June. Stephen Hiltner, travel desk editor at the New York Times, joins us for how bad 2020 was for tourism. Finally, many businesses thrived because of the shifts in spending during lockdowns. Now, looking forward to an economy that will hopefully be getting back to normal soon, these companies are facing questions about if they can keep up. Will people continue to order from DoorDash or go back to restaurants? Will the home improvement sector continue to grow, or are people going on vacations? Paul Ziobro, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. This is vitally important. Joining us now is Jay Green, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jay. Hi, great to be here, Oscar. wanted to check in on Amazon and specifically a warehouse in Alabama where a lot of Amazon workers right now, uh, over 5,800 employees there in Bessemer, are in the middle of a seven-week voting period, mail-in voting period, on whether to unionize or not. I think the voting ends on March 29th. And, uh, you know, it could signal a big shift for Amazon if this is successful there. There's already people looking to maybe do that in their own warehouses in in other parts of the country. Amazon is fighting this pretty aggressively, uh, this union drive. So there's really a lot riding on this. So, Jay, tell us what we're seeing right now, because as I mentioned, there's more than a thousand Amazon workers now that are starting to contact unions to say, hey, maybe we can do this something where we live. Yeah, that's the most interesting thing that's going on, I think, right now. I mean, obviously, the vote is ongoing, too, but we won't know the results, as you say, until the end of the month. But what's really fascinating to me is to see how the unionization effort in Alabama is being watched, not just in this country, but elsewhere, and how it's inspired some folks. And so I talked with the union that is trying to organize the workers in Alabama, the retail, wholesale, and department store union. And they told me that over the last Three months from the beginning of the union drive, they've had a thousand or more than a thousand workers at Amazon contact them and ask if they could get information about what it might take to start organizing drives at their facilities. And, uh, you know, it's a fascinating phenomenon because Amazon's been fighting unionization for really most of its 27 years of life. And this seems to be maybe gaining momentum at some other facilities around the U.S. and the world. Let's talk about that fight that Amazon has had against the unionization efforts. As you mentioned, for most of their life, they've been going through this already. It's a little different in Europe where unions are kind of part of the cultural fabric of workers there. But here, I mean, it's happened in Seattle. It's happened, uh, I think, in Iowa. It's happened a bunch of times. And Amazon has been successful every time in fighting against this so far. The most recent 
fight was in Delaware in 2014. It was a really small unit, and the uh, the machinist union tried to organize and failed. But yeah, I mean, it goes back in 2000, a bunch of call center workers at an Amazon facility here in Seattle, where I live, were trying to organize, and Amazon was effective in shutting down that effort. And it's happened over and over and over again. Amazon's been very effective at doing this, which is, I think, one of the reasons why the fight in Bessemer, where these workers seem to have at least a decent chance of success, is so compelling. Now, Amazon obviously has been getting some criticism for their tactics and, you know, and trying to get workers not to vote for the union. Workers for themselves, you know, they're complaining about aggressive productivity goals, different things like that, and, and obviously concerns over COVID and they don't want to get sick. But what are some of the tactics that Amazon is using? I've heard a bunch of stuff, you know, they're putting flyers in bathrooms. They were holding meetings with people to tell them, hey, you know, uh, you don't want to start paying union dues even though in Alabama it's a right-to-work state, so you don't have to pay union dues. But what are some of these tactics that we're hearing about from Amazon? Those tactics you talked about, we reported on some of those before, but those were ones that started really from the beginning of the drive. What's been interesting to me is to see what Amazon's been doing since the voting began, because the rules are, are, uh, the National Labor Relations rules are a little bit different when you're in the midst of an election. But one of the ones I think is fascinating is Amazon had requested of the NLRB that the balloting be held in person and that that there would be a, a ballot box on the Amazon property so that workers could go and vote as they came to work. And the NLRB shot that down. And they shot it down for a few reasons, not the least of which is because they wanted the balloting to be mail-in to protect not just workers, but NLRB staff as well, because they were the ones who would be counting the, the votes. But what was interesting is that after the NLRB made the decision to not do what Amazon requested, to have a ballot box on property, in the parking lot, in front of the warehouse, inside a tent, Amazon, uh, or all of a sudden a mailbox showed up on the property, in front of the warehouse, inside of a tent. This mailbox is actually a U.S. Postal Service box, but it isn't, doesn't really have markings on it. It's the kind of mailbox you see at apartment buildings or condominiums are called cluster boxes, which have multiple openings where you can kind of pick up your mail and deposit it. But what was interesting about it is they just did this anyway. And so the labor activists who, who you know, are supporting the union say that, you know, Amazon's trying to insert itself into the mechanics of the election. And it could give the impression that Amazon has some control over the election, but also it could see who's voting for what. And so there are some concerns about that one that have been raised. And that's just one of a, a few tactics that folks are raising eyebrows about. Jay Green, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be on the show. You see sort of strong numbers in January, February of 2020, and then March and April, they just really dropped off. Um, April 14th was the sort of low point of traveling TSA checkpoints, and that was 96% lower in 2020 than it was in 2019. Joining us now is Stephen Hiltner, an editor at the Travel Desk at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about tourism in 2020. Obviously, it was really bad because of the pandemic. We couldn't travel. People were locked in their homes. You know, I, I keep saying it's the big disruptor of our lives this past year. But uh, we've seen some pretty dramatic effects on the travel industry. 
in some cases, 99% declines in tourism and revenues. It's really hit a lot of places really hard. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing in the numbers. So, as you say, it's been sort of a, a big collapse in 2020 for the entire travel industry. It's affected, obviously, the airlines and the cruise lines. As far as numbers go, international arrivals were down to 381 million in 2020, and that's down from 1.46 billion in 2019. So that's a 74% decline overall. So obviously, countries that are economically dependent on tourism, that drop has been quite devastating. Tourism accounted for about one out of every 10 jobs in the world. That is pretty amazing. And as you mentioned, these countries that really rely on that stuff have been really hit hard. You mentioned the Maldives in your article. Tourism accounts for about two-thirds of their country's GDP, and that just tanked down. I think it went down by 97%. Yeah, I think from the months of April through September in 2020 compared to 2019, it was down 97%. I think for all of 2020, arrivals, international arrivals in the Maldives were down about 67%. The Maldives is an interesting case. They sort of had a big marketing push in the latter half of the year to bring in tourists and even tried courting influencers with junkets. But in a country like the Maldives, where two thirds of the country's GDP comes from international tourism, obviously losing 97 percent of that for a few months is really tough to handle. And the big worry is the long lasting effects of this. They don't really expect this type of travel to return to the pre-pandemic levels until 2024, possibly. You know, I know there's a lot of people, once they get their vaccines, things started opening up, they're going to want to travel right away, and there will be those people. But widespread vacations and traveling like we used to have, it's going to take a little bit of time to come back. So in the meantime, the U.S. obviously relies on a lot of tourism, but even these other countries are, are going to have to wait on that. And as we mentioned, you know, you have a bunch of charts, different numbers that kind of tell this story of how tourism has taken such a big hit. We can also look to travelers passing through the TSA. Those numbers have gone down by a ton. The TSA numbers kind of illustrate the trends pretty dramatically. I think you see sort of strong numbers in January, February of 2020, and then March and April, they just really dropped off. Um, April 14th was the sort of low point of traveling TSA checkpoints, and that was 96% lower in 2020 than it was in 2019. Those numbers have sort of steadily risen since then, and I think we're now sitting at you know, around half of what we saw a year before, but still quite dramatic. There's some plus and minuses, right? When we talk about emissions early on in the pandemic, I think a lot of people, when, when they were staying home, you weren't seeing cars on freeways as much. Everybody kind of noticed that it was a little cleaner and fresher outside. So emissions have gone down both from uh, car travel and airline travel. Correct. Yeah, the airline emissions was quite dramatic from 2020 compared to 2019. We saw about half of the carbon emissions in 2020. Car travel was a similar story, although we've seen those numbers bounce back a little bit more quickly. Recently, car travel, long distance car travel within the U.S. is back to around 80 percent of what it was in 2019, whereas emissions are still sitting at around half, a little bit higher than what they were. Yeah, I remember for a time, a lot of people were doing write-ups about how the Great American Road Trip is back because at that point, that's kind of all you can do is get in your car, be in your bubble so to speak, and, you know, just check out some nice scenery. So I know that was kind of uh, so that bore out in some of the numbers, too. We saw a lot of people visiting national parks when they could, when they were open. 
Yeah, looking at visitation numbers in national parks was an interesting way of getting at what sort of domestic travel was looking like in the United States. And again, we saw a similar story there in lockdowns hit in March and April. A lot of the parks closed entirely. But what we saw was that in the latter half of 2020, visitation numbers at the parks hit all-time highs in a lot of places. Yellowstone National Park saw more visitors in September and October than it had in any other September and October in history. And so the way to look at that, I think, is that people who were sort of travel starved and unable to take some of the trips that they had planned reverted to seeing some of these national parks, which offered, of course, sort of safe, socially distanced recreation. Cruise lines like the airlines took obviously a huge hit. I think the CDC was uh, blaming them for a lot of the early transmission of the virus. Everybody stuck together. We all saw the stories of people stuck on the cruise ships for days, weeks even, and workers beyond that, sometimes months before they can get offloaded and, and get back into the States or back home abroad even. They took a particularly big hit. They were essentially shut down for the second, third, and fourth quarters of the year. I think we looked at quarterly revenues for three of the biggest cruise companies and Carnival Corporation, which is the biggest cruise company in the world. Their quarterly revenue for the third quarter was down 99.5% in 2020 as compared to 2019. And those revenues include ticket sales and onboard purchases. And so obviously without any sailings, those companies were particularly hard hit. Stephen Hiltner editor at the Travel Desk at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Yep, thanks for having me. While you might not buy as many face masks more, you might, you know, now you have an Etsy account and you, you may know it a little bit better and you kind of know what, what you can get from it. And that's the company that hopes that they can grow faster than the broader e-commerce space, kind of helped by the fact that a lot more new people started shopping on Etsy. Joining us now is Paul Ziobro, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Paul. No problem. Thanks for having me. You know, we're all looking forward to getting back to normal as these vaccines continue to roll out. We've gotten some good instructions from the CDC. Fully vaccinated people can start hanging out without masks and uh, without having a social distance. So, so we're on our way back and checking in on the business world. The pandemic, the big disruptor that it has been, there was a lot of businesses that were thriving throughout the pandemic, food delivery apps, DoorDash, things like that, home improvement stores, because everybody was at home. And what else did you have to do but to fix up your house, things like that. But uh, moving into this next phase, you know, some of these businesses now are confronting a lot of questions. Can they keep up the growth that they've done? Can they keep their businesses going as people's attentions are going to be split? You know, more restaurant dining a lot of other things that pent up spending demand, basically. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about what these businesses are looking at. So I think to start off, I just want to be clear that I think every business and every person wants the world to return to some sense of normalcy from what we had before the pandemic. That being said, some businesses will confront some challenges to their financials as the world returns to a sense of normalcy. I mean, these are the companies who had really big gains during the pandemic. You mentioned DoorDash. You know, Home Depot's, while there was a lot of stores closed, there were a lot of winners that came out of the retail space, home improvement space, electronics companies like Best Buy, who just people bought up laptops for their home offices or homeschooling, bigger TVs to watch their Netflix. People cooked at home a lot. So there was this huge sudden shift in spending and and habits that happened when the world locked down, I guess, uh, you know, just about a year ago. And there's probably going to be just just as big of an unprecedented and unknown sort of shift 
how much we get back to normalcy or is, or is there some accelerated shift into into new habits once things kind of look a little bit normal in this world? And not that that's happening anytime soon, but like you said, there does seem to be light at the end of the tunnel with, with vaccines rolling out, some capacity restrictions being lifted, right. more schools in session. So companies are going to have to confront that new reality sooner rather than later. Yeah, and it's not all bad news. It's not like the business for these companies is going to just drop off out of nowhere, but the growth might not be as big as they experienced this past year. But that's important, it, you know, matters into the structure of their business and, and how they move forward. Do they need to cut back on employees? Do they need to get more employees? These are all kind of the questions that they're going to have to grapple with as growth might not be as fast as as they experienced already. That's true. I mean, some companies had astronomical growth. I mean, DoorDash just, you know, their order levels nearly, you know, I think tripled in the in the fourth quarter last year. So they were one of the clear beneficiaries and, you know, kind of looks like they're, they're going to be one of the clear, I don't want to say losers, but it's hard to see them benefiting as more people go out to, at restaurants and, you know, order in less often. But I think one kind of silver lining to this sort of quote unquote problem is that these companies did have big growth and as a result, they, they added a lot of customers who may, may not have been familiar with their platform. So one of the challenges is to see if there's anything they can do to hold on to that business that they had. Etsy sold a lot of face masks and home decor over the during the pandemic. And while you might not buy as many face masks more, you might, you know, now you have an Etsy account and you, you may know it a little bit better and you kind of know what, what you can get from it. And that's the company that hopes that they can grow faster than the broader e-commerce space, kind of helped by the fact that a lot more new people started shopping on Etsy over the past year. Same thing with, you know, Home Depot and Lowe's. They have a lot of initiatives to make sure that people know of, of new ways that they can upgrade their homes and work with their contractors to do all that. So it's just another thing that these companies are, are going to have to work on as right. we get into this phase, phase of the recovery. And one of the interesting companies in all of this is Zoom. Obviously, People were holding meetings, family gatherings over Zoom. I mean, they really took off throughout the pandemic. And as things open up, people start going back to work. What is their place going to be in, in this space now? You know, they had a huge rise in growth and obviously they want to continue that. So they're definitely going to have to adapt. There's going to be a lot of people still working from home and remotely. A lot of that might stick around, but for them, maybe the usage for people just won't be as great. So they really have a, an interesting place in all this. They do, but even if you think about what the office will look like over the next couple of years, we hear very few companies talking about everybody back in the office at the same time, anytime soon. And I can't even imagine that even within an office that they'll be crowding into conference rooms for big meetings. People very well may sit at their desks or just have a couple of people in the office and a couple of people at home, you know, meeting together like that. So one thing I think that these companies have working in their advantage is that they know that this is coming. Whereas when the pandemic happened, nobody really knew that that was, that was on the horizon. So everybody was really rushing to make sure they, they, they you know, to figure out, you know, what are we going to do here? Whereas with the pandemic, you know, they at least had some time to prepare to say, we don't think this is going to be around forever. Let's figure out and brainstorm ways to find out what our life is going to be like and our company is going to be like um, in this, you know, new normal. And, they can find a way to integrate in, into that. I mean, Zoom's talking about like totally other events and, and other other services. So it's not like they're going to go away, but you may do fewer Zoom calls. Paul Ziobro, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media. 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.